Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Do you ever look around and think, wow, this world's insane? Yeah, me neither. Can you imagine what that would be like, though? Oh, hate to be those guys. On an episode of The Simpsons, little Lisa, the brainy one, discovered the alleged Simpsons curse, that as you aged, you would become less and less smart, eventually turning into a homer. She wrote in her journal, Dear Log, can it be true? Do all Simpsons go through a process of dumbening? Wait, that's not how you spell dumbening. Wait, dumbening isn't even a word. She found out that although the curse is real, it only affects the men. Crisis averted. Unfortunately, it seems that the process of dumbening in this country is widespread. So on today's episode, first we'll lose our minds, then we'll all be rendered unconscious, and finally we'll gently slide on into a democracy. So pull on that straitjacket, prepare to take no responsibility, and practice saying, we're not a democracy. Because, um, something, I forget something, go. I'm not a huge blues fan, but there are a few songs that I do like. One of them is entitled Blue on Black by Kenny Wayne Shepherd. The chorus goes, oh, and don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. Blue on black, tears on a river, push on a shove, it don't mean much. Joker on jack, match on a fire, cold on ice, a dead man's touch. Whisper on a scream, doesn't change a thing, don't bring you back, blue on black. Now this is apparently the best option, the secret playbook, if you will, of the Democrat Party, specifically the head cabbage himself, Joey Baby, and the totally not a Marxist government department, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, to crush inflation one penny at a time. <laughs> no, literally, just, just a penny at a time. So just the other day, October 26, the Prez and Rohi Chopra, the director of the CFPB, and some woman that never said anything just stood there looking really awkward, came out and gave a 20-ish minute briefing about how they're fighting for the little people, the people that are being hit by the massive inflation and gas prices, the plebes and peons of society, you know, you and me. Well, I say that, but no, not really you and me, because we're thinkers. We're actually awake. Uh, this is more of the people of our status, but are easily distracted by Uncle Joe jingling some pocket change that he would prefer you go in and fish out for yourself. So I originally found this on MSN.com with the headline, With Americans Feeling Pinched, Biden Targets Junk Fees. And I also found this on NotTheBee.com with the headline of, Airlines charging more for business class is now racist, according to Biden. <laughs> yes, these are referencing the exact same briefing. Now, I finally decided after reading both of these and only getting little snippets here and there, oddly enough, different takes on the same story. I mean, what are the odds? I decided I needed to find this briefing, and I did. And it's a treasure trove. So from Yahoo Finance via YouTube.com, headline... Well, video entitled, President Biden Delivers Remarks on Actions to Help Families with Expenses Amid Inflation. <laughs> Another angle. Very good. So a dapper-looking Rohi Chopra took the lead, giving a brief outline of what in the world they're doing in front of the camera this fine day. Apparently, the CPFB is fighting for you. They're doing everything in their power to save money for families in their day-to-day -day lives. And the way they're doing it? Well, they're demonizing businesses and corporations and banks and web services and providers and everyone and everything else that charges a few dollars here and a few dollars there for these so-called junk fees. Now, before you ask, Chopra defines junk fees for us. Quote, those unavoidable, unnecessary, and surprise charges that inflate costs for families while providing little to no value or service, adding to our monthly bills with no real explanation, and they're impossible for families to budget for. 
Well, those sound awful. I don't want those. So what are we talking about? What are these fees? Well, turns out these are the fees that you and I pay every single day. You know, overdraft fees, credit card late payment fees, those hidden hotel booking fees, huge termination fees to stop you from changing service providers, surprise depositor fees, bounced check fees, and hidden airline fees, as well as others. Now, Chopra said that there are billions, tens of billions of dollars charged to, to you and me every single year for these hidden fees. I mean, you were probably checking off your list as I was naming them off, right? Yep, overdraft fees. Oh, yeah, nearly every week. Oh, so many hidden hotel booking fees. I, I can't pay my credit card on time. That's simply impossible. And all the hidden airline charges, it's so infuriating. Yeah, I, I, I'm in the same boat with you. We're, we're there. Look, not only do I understand but so does the CFPB and Mr. Chopra, the awkward-looking lady, I'm assuming, and Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., El Presidente Extraordinarie. <sighs> but Chopra was just the warm-up act. Oh, yes, after a few minutes, he announced the headliner, the main show, the center ring, if you will, President Just Watch Me Biden. So Biden first elaborated on what they were doing. The CFPB has sued banks for illegal overdraft fees, and they've sued some payment company for apparently stuffing extra fees into payments that parents are making for just trying to sign up their kids for YMCA camp or have a charity walkathon in the community. He didn't elaborate on these. I think there might be more to the story, but but I'm not the president. So who am I to say? You know, these are all, quote, surprise charges that companies sneak into bills because they can. See, as Joe remembers it, and I can say that again if you'd like, as Joe remembers it, at the beginning of his administration, he apparently spoke on how if the average family had just $400 of those extra charges every month, they'd have to sell something and or have to borrow money to pay them. And these junk fees that they're talking about, well, this adds up to way more than $400 a month for a lot of families. I mean, I know for myself, I've probably got ugh, tens of thousands of dollars of hidden fees every month that I just have no idea about. I mean, it just, they just pop up. It's crazy. So apparently his administration is making it illegal to charge a bounced check fee. Uh, they're making it illegal to have a surprise overdraft fee. <laughs> surprise! And just in case you don't understand how an overdraft happens, which how could we not? I mean, we're all dealing with them all the time. But don't worry, he explains it. He said that this is how it works. You go to pay a bill. You double check your account to make sure you have enough money, right? You're with him on this, right? That You double check your account first every time. Now, after you check and you know that, quote, you've gotten the money, uh, you pay the bill. Then it turns out your balance wasn't up to date because your bank was slow at processing other charges, although apparently lightning fast at processing this one. And now you've overspent. Then the bank, like some kind of horrible beast monster, charges you an overdraft fee. Quote, it's not your fault. The bank screwed up. You didn't. The bank did. You had a positive balance when you paid the bill. It's simply wrong. See, there is absolutely no way you could have ever known that you didn't have the money in that account. If the bank doesn't tell you, how could you possibly know? As we all know, if your account says that you have money, and if you have checks in the checkbook, and or if your credit card still works, you've got money. So spend, spend, spend. All right, so what else are these just living saints doing for us? Well, the FTC is cracking down on deceptive undisclosed fees, like processing fees for concert tickets or resorts or hotels. You know, all the, the hidden fees, the fees that you can't see anywhere, and then you get your bill or check your account, and boom, hidden fees. And there's nothing you can do. They, I mean, they've already got your money. You're stuck. The DOT is going after those unfair airline fees, which are also hidden, like charges to check your bags or change your ticket or rebook your flight. Or, or if you want to sit next to your young child, did you know that they're hiding fees for all of this? Do you realize that you're literally being charged to check a bag? Did you know that if you didn't pay that hidden fee, you would not be allowed to sit next to your young child? 
No, no, sir. They'd put you somewhere else in the aeroplane and probably put some gross old child touching and sniffing old man next to your helpless child. Now call me cheap, but I really feel that the airline's charging you a hidden fee to sit next to your child. Well, that's too far. That that has just gone just way too far. Now, apparently a couple of years ago, in the throes of the so-called pandemic, a lot of flights got canceled, and only one airline allowed you to rebook for free. Now, I find this hard to believe, but what the press said is that, quote, when Secretary B- Buttigieg called them out on this, yeah, well, apparently now there are 10 airlines now that, that don't charge you a fee for a flight that they canceled on their own. Now, like I said, I don't buy this at all, but I also don't care enough to fact check it. I've got better points to be made. I just wanted to quote Biden saying, Secretary Buttigieg. He said that it's just not right for these companies to charge you fees and never tell you. Oh, and I agree. If they're just tucking all of these hidden fees in there, that's wrong. In fact, did you know that, quote, some airlines, if you want six more inches between you and the seat in front, you pay more money, but you don't know it until you purchase your ticket. Now, I hate that. I'll be honest. <laughs> what? All I wanted was more space. More spaces in business class, and you charged me more for that seat that clearly showed it was an upgrade and that it would cost me more? What kind of scam are you running, Mr. Airline? And did you know, oh, well, of course you did, that all of these fees hit the marginalized the most, you know, the low income and the people of color. Apparently, the low income and people of color have uh, thick legs and need that extra seat space. And that's not right. It's not their fault that they have thick legs. And apparently they don't know how to track their spending or that clearly stated up charges or how fees work because they're too stupid. Can anyone say soft racism once again? I mean, this mush brain throws the people of color sticker on his crap package trying to be mega woke, but only succeeding in being mega racist as once again, the very, very low view and low expectations of people of color come through. He went on to say that these fees don't hurt the rich. They hurt people like us, you know, the middle class, the ones that, quote, get up every morning and work for a living, put on their shoes, get out of bed, and go to work. Uh Uh-huh, back that up. You, yeah, that was a quote. So who are these people? Who puts their shoes on while still in bed? That might be the sign of a serial killer. So with all of this stuff that they're working on for you and the fact that Biden said these fees that you and I deal with every month, they're just costing us more than $400 a month, right? I mean, you're with them on that, right? How much are they going to save us with all of this wonderful stuff they're doing? Well, for starters, try $1 billion a year. Now, Biden pointed out that that's not for each person. That's total. I'm, I'm serious. He, he did. So let's say that the 200 million people around this country, they account for this $1 billion per year. That means that you'll be saving, and this is every single year, so just, just hang on, $5. And that's, like I said, every single year, $5. Just boom, in your pocket. Now let's say that 200 million people is too many. Let's say that it's only 20 million people that suffer this injustice. Well, that's $50 every single year. Now, he alludes to the fact that if we can force corporations to comply, and if we sue enough companies and threaten enough others, that they can save you upwards of $15 billion per year. So if that's the 200 million people, well, that's $75 a year. But if it's only the 20 million that's dealing with this stuff, that's $750 every single year. Now, I'm just going to say that although I'd like $750 or even $5, I don't think that amount is life-changing for anyone. But this is what they do. They throw out big numbers, hoping that most people will never figure out that for them personally, they're doing nothing. How does that $50 per year fight against the alleged $400 per month? I mean, we both know that there is likely nobody that's paying $400 a month in hidden fees. But how many people will just take that for granted and say, I could use a billion dollars? He went on to address 
one of the other massive elephants in the room, gas prices. Now, if you think that you're paying more for gas, you're just an idiot fool, stupid head. Bottom line, you have no idea what you're talking about. The cost per gallon has come down $1.25 per gallon since this summer. You know, when Biden drove them to literal record highs for this country. And it's just going to keep going down. He says he said that the average price over the last decade prior to the pandemic was three dollars and 30 cents per gallon. So see, you're fine. Well, I found a site, Axelwise.com, that has the actual average cost of gas in the country back to 1978. This person added in the inflation adjusted price based on 2020 prices this is an interesting graph. We see that for the straight-up dollar figure, we're pretty flat, with a slight increase from 78 to 99, then a decent increase to 2004, then it jumps way up and way down, peaking in 2008, think of the last recession, then spikes again from 2011 to 14, thanks Obama, then drops dramatically from 15 to 20, literally thank you, President Trump, then spikes again in 2021. And 2022 is not on the graph, but it would be even higher. The more interesting part of the graph, though, is the inflation-adjusted cost. It's basically flat from 78 to 2002. And then it actually starts to drop through 2020. And then, and then in 2021, a massive spike of 90 cents per gallon inflation adjusted. Now, what happened that might lead to that? Huh. That's just like those fees. There's no way to know. No way. Don't worry, though. Biden has a plan. And no, no, don't worry. It's not drilling or opening pipelines or approving leases. No, no, no. That's foolish. Quote, it'll come down more when gas companies and the oil companies agree to our demand, my demand to pass on the savings from the price of a barrel of oil which is considerably down to the pump, where, in fact, you get charged by the gallon. Okay, all right, hold up. Hold the phone. We get charged for every gallon. When did this change? Who, why is no one telling me these things? So what we see here is that Biden is not making these demands. It's clear, as he slipped it out there, that our demands, you know, before he tried to correct himself, well, this team of little Marxists is clueless as to how the world actually works. They're a bunch of... Marxists that believe in socialism or communism, no idea how the world works. So, you know, just tell the industry what they're supposed to do. And those private companies better comply, you know, or else. And although it has nothing to do with this review, he did mention it in the video. And I thought you might want to know his upcoming plans. I just really wanted to tell you this. He's heading up to Syracuse to the Micron plant, who's investing apparently $100 billion in a chip plant. And you may ask, oh, well, that sounds nice. When is he going? Well... Quote, I think I go the day after tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, I, th I thought you thought you might want to know that it has nothing to do with this review, but I had to put that in there. All right. So what do we make of this? This is nothing but gaslighting. More simply put, lying. Uh, this is manipulating numbers and words to give you the appearance that something is true that isn't true. So one, is anyone paying $400 a month in all of these hidden fees? Eh, I doubt it. Number two, and maybe this should be first before the $400 fee thing. Are these fees really hidden? I mean, I've booked enough hotels. I know there are fees. Doesn't mean I like them. I just know they're there. I don't know why, but I know there are little FTC fees and cell phone bills. And I know there's a cost to break a contract. If I didn't want that, I didn't have to sign the contract. And every provider I can remember using was upfront about their break contract fees. I've also booked enough airplane tickets, and the upcharges have been spelled out fairly well, which is why I try to stay away from them. I mean, am I wrong about this? Am I the only one? How about looking at all the fees that Biden mentions? Are you being crippled by them on a monthly basis? And number, I don't know, what, what are we on? Three, five, ten, I don't know. C, how is it the government's or the president's job to tell a private business how to run? If we, the consumers, don't like their business model, we will vote with our dollars and forget about the company or the bank or the airline that's charging unreasonably severe fees. Just 
Don't give them your money. Next, according to the New York Post of October 20th, Biden's inflation is costing Americans an extra $445 per month. This isn't fees. This is gas and groceries and clothing and energy. These are the necessities. And finally, according to the Deseret News, as of October 10th, three in five consumers are living check to check. Well, will Biden suing these companies, threatening oil companies, making bank fees illegal actually do anything? As for these other fees, the airlines, the booking, the upgrades, he didn't say they were going to make those illegal. He's just demanding that they're not hidden. Okay, thinks literally every company and business out there. Done and done. I'll just make a guess that the truly hidden fees account for less than, what, 5% of all the so-called junk fees? I'm probably being generous there. So will this administration put $450 back in the pockets of every American every month? Will this battle they're undertaking in your name cure the 60% that are living check to check every month? I think not. Should we mention that the funding for the CFPB was ruled just a week ago by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals unconstitutional? Yeah, this thing was set up after the 2008 crash to allegedly protect the consumer. But because of the way it's funded directly by the Federal Reserve, it's shielded from oversight. So it's a little Gestapo that can smack down private business as it will. This actually calls into question if they have any power, and it calls into question anything they've done up to this point. This is Biden's little enforcement wing. Yeah, unconstitutional. Surprise. What we see here is a disconnection from reality, a delusional worldview based on a quest for power and control. We've long said that liberalism is a mental disorder. I believe this, I really do, but it may be too simplistic. I think that what we're seeing is the burning out of the minds of man from demonic possession, or at the very least, demonic deception and delusion. Paul, in his second letter to the church at Thessalonica, was speaking of the end times, but also of the times leading to the end, which we are currently in. In the second chapter, he starts by saying that we should not be, quote, quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, that the day of the Lord has come. This is just deception. A great rebellion must occur first. He describes the man of lawlessness that will be released, one that will oppose every God, the real God and all others man has created, and will proclaim himself to be God. For now, though, he's restrained, but the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, Paul goes on to say that the activity of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with power and false signs and wonders, and with wicked deception for the unsaved, quote, because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The naked, possessed man in the tombs was insane, ranting and raving. He was possessed by legion, a demonic horde. King Saul had demonic spirits attacking him, and he would fly into an insane rage. The Pharisees accused Jesus of being insane because he was possessed by a demon. Now, he wasn't. They were quickly shut down on that line of reasoning, but curious that they didn't say that he had a mental deficiency of some sort or that he was just mad. No, insane because of possession. They didn't just make that up. When read chronologically, the Quran shows the writings of Muhammad getting more and more frenetic and psychotic, like he was going insane. From the Christian viewpoint, there is little question from the descriptions given that Muhammad was possessed by a very powerful demon, if not Satan himself. Now, I'm not saying that all Democrats are possessed. I'm not not saying it either. But I think that the delusion they're living under, the demonic realm of deception and their rebellion against God and refusal to believe even that which is clearly observably true is burning out their minds. If you look at the pace of delusion, if you look at the level of psychosis over time, there can't be any question that it's increased at a pace never before seen in this country. Denial of life, denial of manhood or womanhood, denial of dementia, the claim that what is clearly recorded and viewed by tens of millions is not true, the return of racism only done under the guise of anti-racism, the belief that you can be trans anything you want, well beyond gender, the calls for genocide of a skin color or a political party, the affirmation of grooming and abusing of children, and the list goes on and on. 
At any other time in our history, the majority of those in the Democratic Party would have been committed for insanity. There is absolutely no doubt of that. But today, they're lifted up as heroes. They're elected to the highest offices. They're revered for their ability to speak to the masses. Quote, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, for those that are saved, even in all of this, we can take comfort. At the end of Thessalonians 2, Paul says that they, and by extension we, are, quote, beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And then Paul speaks a word of comfort for those of us that are worried about what we're seeing around us. Quote, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And that's the key. Rely on God. Fall back on the hope of your salvation. Continue to do everything you do as if done for God. Continue in your sanctification. Continue in your mission. And love God and love others. You have no idea how scared I was. I seriously thought that we were all going to have to grab our protractors, our slide rules, calculators. Personally, I'm grabbing a compass for the pointy end. And then choose a side and have the biggest nerd throwdown in the history of nerd throwdowns. And oh, oh my, what a sordid history that is. Now, a lot of times I'll simply scan the latest news feeds, and if I'm on my phone, I come across a headline that sounds interesting. I'll take a quick screenshot, then I'll just continue on with my day. Later, I'll look up those headlines and read at least some of the story to see if there's something podcastable. As you undoubtedly can tell, more often than not, I choose poorly. It's neither here nor there. I'm here, you're here, and as Obi-Wan said, who is more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows him? Again, off track. So I found one headline, and when I went to look it back up, there were two very similar headlines, but two different research teams that did them in two different colleges with reporting dates only two months apart, and they were both on the same website. Now, luckily, thankfully for all of our safety, these are really more complementary than they are contradictory. So we're going to hit both of them here. Found on SciTechDaily.com from August 2022, headline numero uno, Physicist Claims to Have Solved the Mystery of Consciousness. And from October 2022, headline der, Scientists Have Developed a New Explanation for Consciousness. I mean, can't you just feel the tension? So although I found the second one first, making it the first rather than the second, let's start with the first one first, which was the second one I found, despite the fact that it was first. How many times a day do you stop and think, I'm conscious, but why? Or what is that? Or am I actually conscious? Go ahead, take off your shoes so you can get an accurate count. I'll wait. No? Hmm. Well, I think we can agree that most of us ponder our consciousness with frightening regularity. Thankfully, and here we go, Nur Lahav from Bar Ilan University in Israel and Zachariah A. Nima from the University of Memphis have, as the title implies, solved the mystery. Quote, According to the theory, all that's needed to solve the hard problem of consciousness is to change our assumptions about it. When we realize that consciousness is a physical, relativistic phenomenon, the mystery of consciousness naturally dissolves. Oh, now, if we don't know, we can just change the nature of the problem until we can solve it. <laughs> you have no idea how much that little trick would have helped me in calculus and thermo, fluids, also, physics, thermo 2, calc 2, heat transfer, dynamical systems, pretty much all of the classes that I was required to take in order to get my degree. So to start, what is consciousness? Well, 
to look at it from a psychological standpoint, viewpoint. It could be encompassed by the word awareness. Expanding on that single word, it would be our thoughts, feelings, senses, perceptions. It's an awareness of who you are. It can also refer to our memories, our choices, actions, and reactions, and our experiences. Unfortunately, researchers that need to justify their existence in various colleges and need that sweet research grant money to roll in have apparently been pondering what consciousness is for millennia. Dr. Lahav stated that it's a very odd thing because they can't seem to find a physical driver behind it. In other words, they can't isolate specific electrical brain impulses that account for our consciousness. She said, quote, Think about it this way. When I feel happiness, my brain will create a distinctive pattern of complex neural activity. This neural pattern will perfectly correlate with my conscious feeling of happiness, but it is not my actual feeling. It is just a neural pattern that represents my happiness. So although through analysis they can see the effect of this happiness, they don't know what actually causes the happiness or any other aspect of consciousness. Now hang on to this fact for a bit, we'll come back to it in just a moment. But our two docs have recently developed a new theory that does drive consciousness to only being physical. Quote, according to the researchers, when we change our assumption about consciousness and assume that it is a relativistic phenomenon, the mystery of consciousness naturally dissolves. Now, I know that's what you were thinking. As soon as I said we assume it's relativistic, I guarantee you were saying to yourself, oh, well, that would just dissolve the mystery altogether naturally. So I apologize for talking down to you. So the beauty of their theory that consciousness is relativistic is that they can then simply build a mathematical model to understand consciousness, which makes the concept of consciousness simple-ish. So what do they mean by relativity? Well, they give an example of a man on a moving train passing by a woman standing on a platform. Now, how fast is the man going? Well, from his perspective inside the train, he's not moving at all inside the train. From the woman's viewpoint, the man is traveling at the speed of the train in the positive direction, and she's not moving. From the man's standpoint, the woman is moving at the speed of the train in the negative direction. That's the concept of relative velocity. The speed of an object is relative to the observer. Now, being a math guy, although mathematically that's true, realistically or maybe ultimately, it's kind of silly, to be honest. But this is the concept these researchers use for consciousness. If the man was measuring the woman's brain activity, she may feel happiness, but he would only see the neural activity. If she was measuring his brain activity at the same time, he may feel, I don't know, wonder. But all she would see is also neural activity. So see, consciousness is just relative to the object and the observer. Further, the one feeling their feelings are observing and measuring their feelings with a completely different set of tools internal to only them. Tools each of us can use only on ourselves. See? Math. But you're not seeing the math? Yeah, me either. But then the article says, quote, Using the mathematical tools that describe relativistic phenomena in physics, the theory shows that if the dynamics of Bob's neural activity could be changed to be like the dynamics of Alice's neural activity, then both will be in the same cognitive frame of reference and would have the exact same conscious experience as the other. Still not seeing it? Yeah, it's, it's not there. That's why. I, it's just not there. I know they developed a model, but all this just said is, is that if we could force Bob's brain to fire like Alice's brain, they'd have the same experience. I'd have to say this is a very simplistic view of consciousness, and I can tell you that it's logically impossible for this to be true. But why are they pursuing this? That's a bigger question. What do they hope to gain? Quote, the implications of such a theory are huge. It can be applied to determine which animal was the first animal in the evolutionary process to have consciousness, which patients with consciousness disorders are conscious, when a fetus or baby begins to be conscious, and which AI systems already today have a low degree, if any, of consciousness. See, this theory is necessary. They need living creatures like animals and humans to be able to be reduced to a simple mathematical model and electrical impulse. 
As the article said, this, they believe, will help bolster the stupid myth of evolution. It's more my words than theirs. See, although evolution is physically impossible, or for sake of argument, let's just say it's infinitely implausible, the one thing that organic evolution, life coming from non-life, can't explain is consciousness. From an evolutionary standpoint, there is some use for memories, but nowhere near the capacity for memory that we have as humans. There is almost no use for any emotions at all. Feelings are mostly useless. Bottom line, whatever it is that makes us us makes us individuals. It serves little to no evolutionary purpose, however. So if they can reduce it to physical phenomena governed by a mathematical model, they can then come closer to tying it to evolution. Additionally, as the article stated, they could use this model to determine when to pull the plug or just let someone die. Because if they have a mental disorder, they can then calculate the likelihood someone is truly conscious and the mathematical level of consciousness that they have and then make a decision. We can also justify abortion. In fact, we can justify post-birth abortion. And trust me, that's in the works, generally up to the point that a child knows that when they go to sleep, there will be a tomorrow when they'll wake up. That's the general theory behind post-birth abortion. Well, if a child pre- or post-birth doesn't reach a certain level of mathematical consciousness, then they're not fully evolved or they're not fully human, so disposing of him or her would be inconsequential. And AI. I've said this before, that everyone, the biggest brain thinkers out there, they, they believe that AI will become self-aware. And none of them will admit it seriously, but they're afraid of a Cyberdyne Systems Terminator scenario. Personally, I just can't see a logical path to AI becoming self-aware to the point that it could ever outthink a human. But if all we are is electrical impulses, then sure, it, it could. And we can't let that happen because, you know... Now moving into the second article, scientists have developed a new explanation for consciousness. This is not so much how it exists, like the first article, but more of why it exists. So the first article said that the conscious is relativistic. This one says it's subjective. <laughs> fight, fight, fight. This research is coming out of Boston University's <sighs> Chobanian and... Avadasian School of Medicine. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? And yes, in answer to your question, I did go find a YouTube video talking about the aforementioned school so I could understand how to pronounce said school's name that I shan't be attempting again. So this research also takes a shot at describing the evolution of the conscious because again, they must have this thing that can't be understood through science, understandable through the application of science, or else it will continue to haunt the evolutionists for the next billion years. Now let me let Andrew Budson, MD, professor of neurology, explain their theory. Quote, in a nutshell, our theory is that consciousness developed as a memory system that is used by our unconscious brain to help us flexibly and creatively imagine the future and plan accordingly. What is completely new about this theory is that it suggests we don't perceive the world, make decisions, or perform actions directly. Instead, we do all these things unconsciously, and then, about a half a second later, consciously remember doing them. Okay, let me summarize that for you. We act or react unconsciously, which could be mechanics explained through evolutionary theory. Then we simply remember what we did which memory could be explained through evolutionary theory, and our brain tricks us because of the very short time betwixt the two into thinking that we consciously made the decision to act. Now, from an evolutionary standpoint, I'm not sure why that would develop. There's really no use to that, but okay. Now, what they do in the short article, I gotta say, is very clever. They bring out examples like playing music or playing sports, things that take split-second reflexes and say that because we don't observe consciously evaluate, determine an action, and then execute that action, and see, see. The article states, based on this mind-blowing observation, quote, this theory, according to the researchers, is important because it clarifies how all of our choices and actions, which we mistakenly believe were made consciously, 
are actually made unconsciously. And then they try to tie this theory into some sort of practical use. They say, quote, Therefore, since our conscious mind is not in charge of our actions, we may tell ourselves that we are just going to have one scoop of ice cream, and then, the next thing we know, the container is empty. Budson says, quote, Even our thoughts are not generally under our conscious control. This lack of control is why we may have difficulty stopping a stream of thoughts running through our head as we're trying to go to sleep, and also why mindfulness is hard. Based on this theory, they say that disorders like Alzheimer's, dementia, delirium, migraine, schizophrenia, dissociative identity disorder, autism, and more are just problems with the conscious side of things, the memory side. Now, they don't offer any practical use of this theory in combating these disorders, at least not in the article, just what they consider them to be. But they do say that based on this theory, they can possibly develop systems in education that can target the conscious and unconscious, which would then help people to stop overeating or improve memory. And then the final line in this article with what I think is the largest implication, quote, and even provide insight into philosophical issues around free will and moral responsibility. Okay, wait, what? See, if you think about it, if all we do is act, then remember. Why is intending to eat one scoop of ice cream by eating the entire container any different than intending to take that nice lady on a date and then raping her? or intending to talk out a point of disagreement with a friend, and then murdering him. If what we do is act and remember, rather than consciously choose, there is literally no difference. Now, they do address this in the actual paper. They state that, quote, just because our decisions and actions are ultimately made unconsciously does not mean that we do not have free will. Okay, how? If we're a slave to our unconscious reactions, then how is our will, our conscious, free? Then in that same section, they flat out contradict their own theory. Quote, our conscious mind can cajole our unconscious self into making the best decisions in particular instances and can change the tendencies of our unconscious self over time. Okay, so our conscious mind does affect or control our unconscious, but only sort of, and not really, but yes, it definitely does, kind of. Then they walk it back even farther. Quote, if major life decisions are made slowly over minutes, hours, days, or longer, these important decisions will almost certainly have input from both our conscious mind and our unconscious brain processes. So their theory, if I could boil it down for you here, taking their caveats into consideration for things that require fast reaction time, our training, our practice, our un or subconscious takes over and makes snap split second reactions. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. The things we do consciously like practice or learn or evaluate. Now, how about making mistakes? Things like that. That will change or tweak our split second reactions when those type of reactions are needed. Absolutely. Totally agree. And when we make a decision that's not a split-second, rapid-reaction type of decision, our conscious comes into play. Yeah, absolutely agree. Now, as for eating the entire carton of ice cream without realizing it, I mean, first, it's delicious, who can blame me? Second, I don't think I'd classify mindless actions in the same manner as they're defining unconscious actions. It seems like semantics here, but I think the definition is important. So, what they're saying is that our minds work the way they work, to which I'd agree. From my viewpoint, all they've done is attempt to make this a mechanistic operation to help fit the concept of consciousness into the theory of evolution. And in doing so, they've opened up a defense for any depraved actions a person may commit as simply being an unconscious reaction based on evolutionary theory. And once again, from an evolutionary theory, I definitely agree. Now, I've said for a while now, and it always makes people squirm, especially when I say this like in some class in church, which is part of the fun, that from an evolutionary standpoint, my only goals in life should be eating, killing all the males that I consider to be a threat to my genetic line, and impregnating every female I can club and drag back to the cave in order to propagate my genetic line. But oddly enough, neither of these articles give adequate theories as to why the conscious exists, why it does what it does, and, and why we are the way we are. <laughs> I know, shocking, right? If only there were some way to know why we have a conscious, why we have emotions, 
why we have feelings, why we think and feel and act and react. If only there were, oh man, I don't know, a book, a manual, just something with some nice maps and little colored ribbon bookmarker things. See, the problem that these researchers have is that they're trying to develop theories to explain everything from a purely naturalistic viewpoint. Now, I have no issue with developing such a theory, but when they repeatedly can't make their theory work, they can't explain why this exists and have to come up with, well, frankly, silly explanations, it's time to broaden your science, quote-unquote, into all possibilities. The reality is that we're made in the image of God. As I've said before, that has nothing to do with physical looks. It means that we have emotions. We think and reason. We feel. We understand mercy and justice and grace and other conceptual, otherwise unexplainable things. When you look in the Bible for the word conscious, as Paul tells us repeatedly to keep a clean or a clear conscious, or that the conscious will accuse or even excuse a person, and that the conscious could be seared and hardened, the word used is sunidesis. This word translates per Strong's Dictionary as joint knowing, specifically the joining of moral and spiritual consciousness as part of being created in the divine image. See, consciousness can't be explained without a supernatural cause. There is no reason for morals and laws, right or wrong, to develop or be written on our hearts from an evolutionary worldview, as I said previously. At least, there's no reason for them to develop as a universal set of morals. If evolution were true, everyone's morals would be different, and there would be no way to claim any absolute right or wrong. In order to have morals or laws, we must have a moral and law giver. We must have an absolute in order to base our admittedly less than perfect interpretation and application of laws and morals on. To try to justify the image of God that all mankind is created with as instead a random process of chemical reactions well, frankly, it gives us exactly what we've got, a society that has a very low view of humanity, very low view of life in general, and a desire for moral relativism. You know, my truth is true for me. You can have your own truth, even if it's different. The theory of evolution and the ramifications of that theory are, in my opinion, one of the most destructive theories that so-called science, or Satan, has ever concocted. The subtlety of the theory, the widespread acceptance of this theory by Christians and non-Christians alike has destroyed and will continue to destroy countless lives and the faith of millions. And sadly, most churches today are what I would consider derelict in their duty to rightly divide the word of truth regarding the creation of this existence. The focus is turned to the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, and specifically love. And all of those are of the utmost importance. But if we don't have the solid foundation of the history of the creation, as chronicled in the first few chapters of Genesis, we have nothing to base our faith on, no reason to believe anything the Bible says, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was done for absolutely no reason. Evolution says a long series of death brought forth humans, which brought forth sin. Rather than humans being created, humans sinning, and sin bringing forth death. If death was not a consequence of sin, Jesus died for nothing. You simply cannot logically mix evolution and the Bible. These theories that we can just reduce everything to a simple mathematical mechanistic model, or that we're not thinking, reasoning, moral creatures, but rather beings that simply react or act unconsciously, these are unbiblical. They're very dangerous, and they need to be called out for what they are in ideology, in anti-God religion unto themselves. Regardless of what you call them, they should never be considered science. And frankly, they should never even be considered. Commander-in-Chief, Chief Executive, Head of State, Leader of the Free World. These are just a few of the ways we refer to the President of the United States. Obviously, given the country's position on the world stage and the immense power that this one man wields, we would only elect into this esteemed office the best, brightest, most competent person available in the entire country. I mean, it wouldn't only be foolish, it'd be suicidal to do anything but that. Anyway, welcome back to the American Genesis. This is episode 15, also known as part 7 of our look at the Constitution of the United States. In the last episode, we started our look at Article 2, outlining the executive branch. We were only able to get through Section 1, but on this episode, 
we will definitely make some more progress. So starting with section two of article two, we read, the president shall be commander in chief of the army and navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. He may require the opinion in writing of the principal officer in each of the executive departments upon any subject relating to the duties of their respective offices, and he shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. He shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provided two-thirds of the senators present concur, and he shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for, and which shall be established by law, but the Congress may by law vest the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the President alone in the courts of law or in the heads of departments. The President shall have power to fill up vacancies that may happen during the recess of the Senate by granting commissions which shall expire at the end of their next session. Okay, so the President is the top military commander of the armed forces. So I got thinking, what about the Air Force? Where did they get officially placed under the command of the president? And from a documentation standpoint, they never did. It's taken for granted that stating the Army and Navy just kind of covers and assumes all branches of the armed forces. Now, I actually stumbled across a memorandum written by Harold Bainton, the acting assistant to the attorney general, dated August 26th, 1947, that answers this exact question. Apparently, this question was raised by someone at that time, right after the Air Force was created. And the summary is basically, don't be silly. Of course, the Constitution means all armed military forces. Okay, I mean, I guess, you know, whatever. So, did you know that there are eight uniformed services of the United States? Eh, no, I didn't, uh, I didn't either. So as part of the Department of Defense, you have the Army, which is its own branch, the Department of the Army. You have the Navy and Marines, who both serve under the Department of the Navy. And you have the Air Force and the newly minted Space Force, both serving under the Department of the Air Force. Then under the Department of Homeland Security, you have the Coast Guard. I didn't realize they were designated Homeland Security. Now, apparently from its inception in 1790 all the way to 1967, the Coast Guard was under the Department of the Treasury. Then from 1967 to 2002, it was under the Department of Transportation. And since 2002, Homeland Security. However, during times of war, it may be transferred by the President or the Congress to the Department of the Navy. Then we have the Department of Health and Human Services, who oversees the Public Health Service Commissioned Corps, which I don't think I've ever actually heard of that name, but that's headed by the Surgeon General of the United States, who at this point is that little weasel, Vivek Murthy. You would have seen him come out and badger you in various ads and on various media outlets about getting injected by their COVID blood clotting agent. Finally, we have under the Department of Commerce the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Commissioned Officer Corps, or NOAA Corps for short. Now, I knew NOAA existed, but did you know that there was a Commissioned Officer Corps for NOAA? I didn't know that one either. So, the President is commander over all of these uniform services. And can I just say, this fact terrifies me. At this current point in time, I mean, for no particular reason, I, I'm just, I, maybe I'm just a nervous fella. It's just saying. The next clause, termed the opinion clause, kind of threw me as for why that was even in there. I mean, he can ask for the opinion from the various departments. In other words, he can seek counsel from others. Seems like a no-brainer. So I looked it up. Well, it's literally as simple as it sounds. The president can act, in some cases on his own but he can also ask for others to give their opinions. 
The reason this clause is in the Constitution is because of the way things worked under the king and two different opinions as to how power should be vested in the president. So to boil it down, the king had a privy council that he could consult with on a regular basis before making decisions. The two sides of this argument were for the president to have a council in a similar manner or have no council at all. The reason the one side didn't want him to have a specific council is because they were vesting a lot of power in the president, and with that, responsibility. And it was put in this single person. They didn't want him to be able to either shirk his responsibility by blaming his consul or coerce them to agree with his opinion so he could deflect blame. The compromise reached is what we have in the Constitution here. The president doesn't have to, but he may request in writing opinions from any of the heads of various departments. But it's also up to him who, if any, he asks. This is what we know of as the president's cabinet today. Now, if you're curious why we're in the position we're currently in, the main members of President Joe Biden's cabinet are Kamala Harris, Lloyd Austin, Antony Blinken, Janet Yellen, Merrick Garland, Dennis McDonough, and Alejandro Mayorkas. I don't know who Dennis is, but I guarantee that you or I could do a better job than any of those other clowns. Just right out of the chute, we could do a better job. Most, if not all of them, should be impeached at a minimum, in my humble opinion. Harris is incompetent. Austin and Blinken, I mean, let me just say Afghanistan. Uh, that, That should be enough said. Yellen for tanking the economy, Garland for blatant abuse of powers, and Mayorkas for allowing an invasion of our southern border. All of these should be gone. Some should be brought up on various charges. Again, my opinion. Although not technically illegal, I would question if the slate of unaccountable, unelected advisors the president can appoint for the White House or the executive office violates the intent of the Constitution. Now, most of those on the left had a major issue with Trump appointing family as advisors. And I can actually see that. It is a conflict of interest, especially with a parent-child relationship. Now, personally, I kind of have a big problem as big as that, if not bigger, with whatever Marxists Biden has appointed, you know, because of because of Marxism. But this has been allowed by Congress, so there's really nothing that we can do about it right now. The Senate has various checks on the president. The Senate must agree with proposed treaties as well as appointments of those to lead certain departments and ambassadors, federal judges, Supreme Court justices and others. But as I said, positions in the executive office and certain advisors, as well as other senior level positions, can be appointed without the Congress getting involved. And finally, he can make appointments requiring approval without approval if he does it while the Senate is in recess. Now, this is basically a game. At least it is now. Trump made history by not making any recess appointments. Not that he didn't want to. He was just challenged on that. And absolutely everything else he tried to do including just breathe. Unfortunately, a just-in-case clause is now nothing but a game. If you have a friendly Senate and you have some controversial individuals you want to appoint, eh, just get them to go ahead and recess, and then you can appoint them before the Senate reconvenes. There's a lot of talk, and there's been a lot of talk, about ensuring that we're not violating the intent of the Constitution. Well, to me, this is a pretty blatant violation of the intent. But again, look around. Here we are. Let's move on to Section 3. Section 3 says, He shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. He may, on extraordinary occasions, convene both houses or either of them, and in case of disagreement between them, with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper. He shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. He shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed, and shall commission all the officers of the United States. Okay, yes, the State of the Union. Now, you may be surprised to know that the founders did not intend for the State of the Union to be a three-ring circus. They probably never envisioned it to be a display where one side claps every four words that are uttered and the other side boos everything. 
And then, of course, you have the Crypt Keeper standing behind you, struggling to muster up the strength to tear some pieces of 32-pound paper in half. In fact, this wasn't even a requirement to do annually, nor was it a requirement to be a speech. Some presidents gave a speech, some just a written report. I think I'd rather that they just submit a written report. Skip all of the crapulence and the dog and pony show. It's just self-aggrandizing. Now, I find it interesting that further in this uh, section, the, the president is supposed to, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Huh. See, I find it interesting because it seems to me that most of the presidents in my lifetime have done everything they could to try to figure out how to skirt or outright ignore the laws. That seems to be the main job of the attorney general these days. You know, look for loopholes in the law for the president to use. Well, let's move on and finish Article 2 with Section 4. Section 4 states, The president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Hmm. Oh, <coughs> sorry, got lost in my daydreams there for a minute. Where were you? Oh, yeah, <laughs> impeachment. Uh, to date, and I'll be honest, I hope we add one more of these soon, there have only been three presidents that have been formally impeached. However, they were never convicted by the Senate, only impeached by the House. Now, I covered this previously. If you'd like specifics, go back to Part 3 of our look at the Constitution. The three that were impeached, just as an FYI, are Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump, twice. Just go check out Part 3 for more on that. Now I want to briefly wrap up this section with the controversial topic of executive orders. And I say controversial, but really it's only about 50% of the population that finds it controversial. And that 50% changes based on the letter the president has after his name. Simply put, the president has the ability to issue memoranda, proclamations, executive actions, and executive orders in order to run the executive branch and the country. This ability is not spelled out in the Constitution. It's just accepted. The problem or the controversy is that the Congress is the lawmaking body of the government, but executive orders can have the force and effect of law. Now, at this point in our history, if any president signs an executive order that the other side doesn't like, legal action will be sought immediately, and the order will either stand or be struck down. It's still not law if it stands, but they can be enforced as law. The Congress could take up this presidential desire and make it law, or they could make a law nullifying the order, and the next president can come in and nullify or even directly reverse the orders by the previous president. So much like the rest of our government today, once again, it's literally just a game, just a, a childish game. Now, the only president to never sign an executive order was William Henry Harrison, uh, he died one month into his presidency, so it wasn't like he was just that principled or anything. Grover Cleveland, our 22nd president, was the first one to issue over 100 orders in his time. And then it's a mix of Democrats and Republicans. And we think that our current presidents are just abusing the system, which may be by nature of the orders they are, but not by numbers. They're rookies by numbers. See, Reagan signed 381, H.W. Bush signed 166, Clinton 364, W. signed 291, Obama 276, Trump at 220, and so far Biden is at 99, although he probably has no idea. But who really abused this system? Well, the biggest offender is FDR with 3,728 orders. Next is Woodrow Wilson with 1,803. Now, the interesting thing is that these were two of the worst presidents this country has ever seen. They were both hardcore socialists, heavy government control, and they, along with Teddy Roosevelt, set up social, national, and global systems that are still kicking us in the butt today. And then next we have three Republicans. Coolidge had 1,203. Teddy, uh-huh, see what I mean? He's at 1,081, and Hoover was at 968. So as a whole, the problems we see with the systems that were set up 
back then, the problems we see today, is exactly what Benjamin Franklin said when asked by a citizen after the Constitutional Convention emerged. Quote, well, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us? He replied, quote, you have a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And here we are. Because of sin, because of arrogance, the quest for power, we have taken a republic and pushed it heavily toward a democracy, with vestiges of progressivism and social engineering. If you're curious what those terms mean, check out episode 74 of this podcast, our look at the Democrat Party platform, part 7. The executive was set up with a large amount of power, but for those with a thirst for power, it'll never be enough. Additionally, Washington warned us in his farewell address that we should avoid political parties and the division those bring, because they cause divisions in the nation, which elevates loyalty to party over loyalty to the nation. And once that loyalty reassociates, it leads to arguing, fighting, and disparaging of the other party using any method available, including outright lies. And so, of course, after he said that, we instantly split into parties. And to be honest, nobody is happy with either party. We just keep voting for our letter because they're the lesser of two evils. Well, that's not how it's supposed to be. And now we've been infiltrated with nefarious actors, with people that not only can't keep the republic, but don't want to keep the republic. So at any rate, we've reached the end of what the executive branch should be, what the founders envisioned for our top executive. In the next episode of The American Genesis, we'll start looking at Article 3 regarding the third branch of our government, the judicial branch. So until then, keep in mind, it's voting season again, how about we vote for those that are most likely to want to keep the Republic, shall we? And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.